session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwe, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. On Instagram Live for the show, so I'm not taking any calls. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. The shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get into the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is The Varieties of Scientific Experience, A Personal View of the Search for God by Carl Sagan, edited by Anne Druyan. And so uh, this book, The Varieties of Scientific Experience, it's based on some lectures that were done by Carl Sagan, a prominent American scientist who passed away. Uh, I forgot how many years ago now, but it's been some years. And this book actually was written by his um, wife, when they when he passed, they were married, and Druyan uh, edited the book, compiled it into a a, uh, a book. And I was just told by a good friend Alex about this book over the weekend. It sounded fascinating, so I don't know much about it other than that. The varieties of scientific experience: a personal view of the search for God by Carl Sagan, edited by Anne Druyan. So, looking forward to reading that, sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is 10% Happier by Dan Harris. 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works, A True Story. And so I'd seen this title many times for this book, 10% Happier, and it seemed Interesting, but I never actually got the book and read it. But recently, a friend of mine recommended the book, so I thought I would check it out, and I'm glad that I did. It was interesting. I didn't know, uh, based on the title, 10% Happier, that it was going to be mostly about meditation, or that's really one of the central points of what Dan Harris did to help himself. And so the book reads kind of like a part autobiography, part um promotion of meditation in a way or, or demonstration of, of meditation. And Dan Harris is, he's a, a newsman as he calls himself or a reporter. He's a correspondent for ABC News. And also you can check out, he's made a, an app I downloaded but haven't checked it out yet called 10% Happier that can help facilitate um, doing meditation and adding it into your life. But so he describes his life and actually that was uh, interesting to see him weave his own vulnerability as far as things he experienced throughout his life, uh, which included even drug abuse uh, and some you know darker moments. But I thought that was interesting that he added that and it made it much more meaningful. So Dan Harris shares his story, and one of the, uh, the pivotal moments for him is a moment that went viral, and I remember hearing about it, and I went and watched the video, but where he had a panic attack live on the air. I think he was doing Good Morning America, and so they went to him to do, I think, like a few minutes worth of news, but within a minute or so, he started feeling his panic attack, and he barely could get the words out, and so he actually just had to send it back to the anchors because he could no longer continue. So he literally had a panic attack 
on the air. And so uh, that is a, in a way, pivotal moment for him of realizing he really does need some help. But so he shares his his life story of being someone who wanted to be well known for the news and to, uh, you know, his ambition for his career and how this sent him all over the place, including uh, to the Middle East to cover the war. And so he uh, came back and more than likely from what he's describing, he might have experienced some level of PTSD, or at least we can say being in war-torn or war-affected um, areas or areas that are currently at war must have had an impact on him. And he came back and he might have been, from what I gather in, in a way he shares, avoiding the feelings or avoiding what he was going through, which is often what people do, especially if they think, well, I got to just keep moving forward so I can't pause to, to look at what's going on. Those pesky feelings will just get in the way. And so he keeps moving forward, but he also shares that he, uh, upon returning at some point, got into harder drugs, things like cocaine, it seems like mostly, but even ecstasy and other drugs as well, and then shares his experience of, of those things. And likely the drugs could have related to the panic attack as well. When you take drugs like cocaine, that they get you up, your body then responds the other way. It um, creates, uh, you know, send your body out of whack. But nonetheless, he went and saw a psychiatrist. He shares some of those moments uh, and his sessions with a psychiatrist seems like they had some therapy elements, not just uh, medication management. Um, but eventually, through his work and really his personal experience, he stumbles upon meditation. So he's asked to then cover the religious, um, uh, religious stories or stories about individuals in religion and then stumbles upon meditation. And so then he goes through that journey. But I even, you know, looking at the title and the title is something that he, he kind of shares a story of how that came up 10% happier. I do like that title because a lot of times self-help type of books or seminars or, you know, gurus that will present themselves to you, they don't tell you they'll make you 10% happier. They say, if you follow me, your life will be perpetual bliss and you'll always be happy. And so um, that always rubs me the wrong way. And you've heard me say that many times before. If anyone promises you too much, well, what you should think sounds too good to be true, then more than likely it is. So when people tell you that if you follow this, you'll always be happy, the truth is nothing is going to make you always happy. And I might share about that in the second segment, some thoughts about what that even means when we look at being happier, because there's lots of ways to to get there, and it's not always just living in perpetual bliss. But anyway, he shares his encounters. He actually got to interview for his work uh, individuals like Eckhart Tolle. That's one of the first ones, author of, um, I think it's The Power of Now and A New Earth. And he shares a kind of mixed feelings about him at first being very turned off by some of the writing and um, how he... He himself will say in the title of the chapter about Eckhart Tolle is genius or lunatic. And so he shares how by talking with him, he would find that in one sentence, he would say something very profound and meaningful, but also in that same sentence, something pseudoscientific and really that didn't make any sense. That was something that was off-putting for him. So he had mixed feelings about that. Uh, and that was you know interesting to hear him first meet Eckhart Tolle having some mixed feelings, and then he met uh, Deepak Chopra, or he shares the story of then interviewing Deepak Chopra, who um, also, there's some things he liked, but some things he didn't like. And in particular, no, you know, the way he saw him just didn't make sense that he was saying um, he was so 
quote unquote Zen or at peace, but then he would see him and didn't see him really being so on the moment. He was on his phone or Blackberry the whole time and doing things. So it didn't seem like he was so mindful. And the way both of them talked, you know, in the interviews, at least, you know, you have those moments of saying things like I never can, you know, will feel regret or stress or any of these types of things, which always makes me skeptical of that. I don't believe someone who tells you they never feel certain things. I don't think that's even the goal of life is to not ever get upset or to ever get stressed or not feel okay. Um, And even, you know, he had a moment with uh, Deepak Chopra where he was asking him, the author of the book, Dan Harris, said, well, how can I be more like that the way that he was describing being? Uh, And he said, hang around me more. And to me, that also was a little bit uh, rubbed me the wrong way as far as saying, if you're just around me, you're going to be better. Of course, we uh, get affected by the people that we are around, but there is a way of kind of saying that if you are with me, you'll be better, has that feeling of the guru that thinks I'm so great that um, if you're just around me, you'll become more like me. It, it's, those things don't don't really appeal to me. And so he himself didn't get the best experiences from them. He does share actually later on, it seems like the person that he found the most alignment alignment with as far as these kind of more bigger names in the meditation world was Dr. Mark Epstein, who's not as big, I would say, as um, Eckhart Tolle or, or Deepak Chopra, but I, I think more reasonable, more realistic. And actually, um, I've covered a few of his books. I forgot. One of them, I think, is The Trauma of Everyday Life and another book that I, I can't remember by Dr. Mark Epstein. And I really liked them, too. They seemed more, to me, realistic. I, I don't really connect when it's too fluffy in a way or promises too much and even there's a term sometimes they call it um, pseudo what is it called anyway there's some uh, terms you can that there are out there for people who use words or phrases that are that appear to be very profound I think it's pseudo profound statements you know people can use a few flowery um, words to try to say something uh, that seems profound but usually it's not that that interesting. So um, I, I felt that when you look at Mark Epstein, his his writing is much more realistic. And so we we see Dan Harris go through his journey, someone who's very skeptical of meditation and thinks it doesn't really work and puts it off for a long time. But he shares in this book his struggle of starting to meditate, what it was like. I think one of the most interesting parts in the book is he shares going on a 10-day silent retreat and uh, goes through every day of that. And in, in that retreat, at one point he has, you know, I think it was day four or five, a very profound experience where he feels this intense feeling of joy and interconnectedness with things. It reminded me of the book, um, Robert Wright, uh, Why Buddhism is True. He similarly shares his experience going to, I think it was a silent retreat or at least a, a meditation retreat and how he had some similar type of experiences. Um, and so it reminded me of that. I don't even know who wrote which book first, but either way. Actually, I think this one, 10% Happier, was written first. But similar journeys or experiences as far as those retreats go. Uh, and then also he shares how it affects him in his work, sometimes for better or worse. Um, uh, an issue that he has that he brings up throughout the book is that if you become you know, so Zen or so mindful in this way, does it make you passive? Does it make you not as ambitious or try as hard? And how do you balance that? That's something that he's trying to figure out, someone who he himself cares so much about his 
career and he wants to keep moving forward, can he do that while also meditating and becoming more uh, mindful? And he actually finds that for a while it made him less uh, ambitious, pushing himself less, but that it doesn't have to be the case. And I agree with that. Uh, being mindful and meditating doesn't mean you have to become passive or sometimes people think it's going to make you weak. I don't think that has to be the case at all. You can still be uh, very passionately and intensely involved with your life. And I think that's, you know, introduces some of the misconceptions we have about meditation and mindfulness. Uh, something I've shared a lot of times is people think that, well, if I meditate, then I'm going to always be at peace. Or if I'm meditating, I'm just going to feel these peaceful feelings. But really, the truth is when you meditate, you're getting in touch with your feelings and some of them won't be good. Actually, the reason why we avoid being mindful a lot of times, being with ourselves in the moment, is that we don't want to feel certain feelings that are there. And so by meditating, by slowing down and tuning in to ourselves, we have to be ready that you're actually going to face some feelings that might not feel good. And uh, he shares the phrase, the only, thing, the only way out is through. And so I think um, that that's a very important type of, concept or mindset to have is that the only way we really heal anything or deal with any feelings is you have to feel it. You have to feel to deal with whatever it is you're uh, going through. So avoidance does not work. And so that means we have to get in touch with things that are unpleasant. That's the only way really things get better. So you have to be ready for that. And he shares his experiences in meditation, how things come up, trying to have that non-judgmental awareness of what's coming up, noting what you're feeling or what you're thinking, but not judging it. And that's much easier said than done. But I think he does a good job of taking you through his journey. So it's not just coming from some enlightened one who, uh, you know, everything comes so easily to them now, but he's still struggling. And he, he says, you know, it probably made him 10% happier and maybe more over time. Um, but again, I like that type of a realistic goal or realistic approach uh, to tell people. People are looking for a quick fix. They're looking for something that's going to fix all their problems and make everything go away. But really, there is nothing like that. And maybe that's okay. Maybe it's okay. All your problems will never go away. And anyone who promises you that, uh, as I always say, is selling you either themselves or something, a product. And sometimes it's kind of both themselves and products that they sell. And so that always rubs me the wrong way, but there's great appeal to that. Someone says something in some flowery ways. You know, the infinite wisdom of the divine can be unlocked when we truly get it. I'm just making up some words, but it can sound very profound. And um, something to be aware of is that when people are approached or, or they present themselves in this way, they come off in a very, you know, I'm enlightened. I've never experience any more stress or regret because I'm so in the moment, I'm so this and that. And then they'll say things in this like pseudo profound way, very twisted, convoluted, making claims that they can't make. But when they present themselves as so wise and so smart, and they present something that is not easy to understand, what it makes you think, it's not easy to understand because it doesn't make sense. That's the important part. What it makes you think or what it does to the listener sometimes, think, wow, this person is so smart, profound, and wise that I can't quite get what they're saying, but there seems to be something there. 
but really there's no there there. There's nothing really that they're saying. But again, you can, and there's actually, uh, I can't say the words because I think it's BS generator, but there's these types of, um, someone made, I think, either an algorithm or something that just makes these types of profound statements that don't make sense, pseudo profound or profound nonsense. And people can, they, they can test different people and you can see how likely you are to think it's something wise. Again, just saying a bunch of, you know, things, the divine essence of pureness when we internalize the spirit that is around us, makes us more, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm just saying random words. But if you say it in a certain way and you present it for some people, all of a sudden it's like, wow. And then you could tell people, no, if you don't get it, it's so deep that we don't understand really what's there. And this wise man or woman, uh, interestingly, most of the time we see these gurus tend to be men. Now, maybe that'll change over time, but more of them are men. which you know, I won't get into all the potential reasons or thoughts on that, but be mindful or aware of that. You know, the book talks about meditation and mindfulness, but we want to be aware of the profound nonsense that people will tell you and that if it doesn't make sense, maybe it's because it doesn't make sense and, and don't be fooled by that. But anyway, um, so I thought that I, I related to Dan Harris, the author of this book, because of that, because he, he seemed to be turned off by those types of things too that he was seeing in the uh, you know the world the world of meditation and pe- the you know the new age gurus and whatnot and the people he connected with I think Dr. Mark Epstein is much more realistic and reasonable that he talked about himself oh yeah sometimes I get stressed or upset or annoyed you know that's part of being human and I don't think that's something we ever have to get rid of or think that's the goal and I think in the next segment what I'll talk about in this topic or, or the title of the book, 10% Happier, how we can think of that in a way of um, making us feel better about our lives by realizing that maybe some of what we have is, is actually okay. Or if we don't set an unrealistic standard, we actually might recognize that we are happier with our life than we, we, are, we think we should be. What's funny is after talking about profound nonsense, I'm going to try to be very careful not to say any profound nonsense myself and try to make sure everything I'm saying makes sense. Um, but I'll continue on this topic essentially, but in a way I'll, I'll wrap up about the book here. 10% Happier by Dan Harris. I think it's a it's an interesting book to kind of give you some insight into what you yourself might experience with meditation. Many people say, I'm not good at it. It's not for me, but I hope you will give meditation a try. And I'll continue on that topic after the break. We will be right back. back. Uh, and the first segment was talking about the book 10% Happier by Dan Harris. You know, During the commercial break, there were a few comments that I, I wanted to share a few of the thoughts that came up in those types of things. Um, so uh, meditation for children, that's an interesting question someone asked about that. And so, you know, I don't know the specific techniques that, that are out there, or if there's apps, I'm sure there are. But um, I think it's a very important thing. You know, we think of meditation like uh, this very unique exercise, but really it's trying to promote things like being more mindful. Um, on top of being more mindful, we want to be uh, create some space between ourselves and our feelings or, you know, what we talk about when something happens to us, we can either react or respond. 
And so being more mindful can contribute to having more of an ability to respond rather than react by being aware of what we're feeling, by being aware of what's going on, by creating some of that distance. Sometimes people call it uh, the observing self. So rather than, I am so angry, so I'm going to go do something about it, we can say, I feel anger. I can feel that I'm angry about what that person did and create some space between the feeling and ourselves so it's not something that's all-encompassing and the only thing that, that we have going on. So we want to consider that when we ask about meditation for children, of course, you can't, as with anything, force your children to be um, you know, to go meditate. You have to go to your room and meditate as some kind of punishment. Interestingly, actually, time out in a way is supposed to be functioning in some ways like a meditation. Not exactly, but people usually use time out as a punishment. But really what time out is supposed to be used for, how it was really intended to be used, is that you help your child calm down. So it's not go to your room, you're in time out because you're bad. It's that you're getting overwhelmed with feelings. You're seems like you're you know feeling some big feelings let's see if we can take a break to calm down and even sometimes you can calm down with them so timeout doesn't mean go to your room and be punished by being isolated you actually can help your child calm down taking some deep breaths talking about what they were feeling now that they're calm talking about oh you were feeling so angry then and you know whatever you know they're experiencing and now you're more calm and that can also help them become aware of their feelings how they experience them, what they can do with them, that they don't have to just act on a feeling and all those types of things. So when we think of meditation with children, don't think of it just as the act of, for example, sitting quietly or doing an, a guided meditation. You can teach some of the aspects or the principles that are critical in meditation or that we're hoping to get in your to your children in different ways. I think the breathing is a very important one that um, I've used with children before. Uh, School on Wheels, uh, the organization that I volunteer with, they have in the Skid Row Learning Center, they have a room, a quiet room, a refocusing room, I think they call it now. So rather than being like timeout, if the kid is feeling really agitated or amped up, they can go into the refocusing room, which has comfortable seats and it's kind of uh, softer lighting, and they can just take some time to relax. So it's not a punishment, but it's that, okay, you have big feelings. So let's see, um, you know, you could try to help yourself calm down, take a little bit of a break. So I think, you know, teaching meditation to your children is very important from a young age as far as teaching them mindfulness, as is always the case. If you want to teach your children to be more mindful, you probably know what I'm going to say next. You have to do it yourself. So you have to model it for them. So if they see you constantly uh, on your phone, not being present, not being mindful, they aren't going to then see the significance or importance of that. So I think it's very important as a parent to model anything you want for your children to do. So um, those are just some thoughts, but don't think that meditation is something you have to wait. They're they're using it even in some schools. Uh, You might have seen this article. It kind of went semi-viral a while ago that there were some schools that were using meditation instead of detention. So instead of punishing the kids, it, it was helping them calm down and deal with their feelings and and punishment tends not to be a great uh, teacher of good behavior or good ways of dealing with things and we want to look at what is the child really dealing with and help them rather than just punish them and think that that's going to be a good thing so um, those are just some thoughts someone shared a question about meditation with children i would focus not necessarily just on the practice of meditation as far as sitting on a, a cushion you know for 10 minutes a day 
and trying to just focus on your thoughts or uh, focus on your breath, let's say, but more about um, mindfulness in general. And, and children tend to be much more mindful than adults in a lot of ways, but we can help them get a better handle of their feelings and get more in touch with themselves. But I did mention in the last segment I wanted to talk about this title, 10% Happier. And the, the cover of the book actually has a glass that is, well, how do I describe it? Is it half full or half empty? So it's a, it's a glass that is half filled with water. And of course, so that means the other half is empty and a drop is actually coming in. So I'm not sure if that means this is like the drop that's adding 10%. And so I did like, as I mentioned, this title or this concept he comes up with that he describes midway or kind of near the end of the book, that meditation, it's not going to fix all your problems, but it's going to uh, help you be maybe 10% happier. That's the effect it had for him. And so even in his own um, experience, something I felt in Dan Harris was like this this drive and something in the, uh, in, the uh, in the commercial break, someone asked, do you think he was perfectionistic and critical of some of the people he, he talked about? And that might be true. He definitely he talks about his own perfectionism. That's definitely there. And so it seemed like he almost had this uh, perfectionistic view of what meditation or something should do in helping us. And, um, you know, people talk about enlightenment and what does that mean? And it's complicated and people write books and give lectures on these topics. And I won't get into that that much. But I think one of the things to realize is that we cling to some notions of happiness or what we're supposed to feel that are unrealistic. And so that's actually one of the reasons why when people sell us these types of things, I'm going to make you happy all the time, people are like, yes, that's what I want. The same like with romantic relationships. You're going to find someone, your soulmate, and every moment is bliss. And so we get sold and we create these fake and unrealistic expectations of what life or love is supposed to be like. And they get us in a, a lot of problems because... What you experience is then maybe, you know, you're in love, but you're like, you know, but sometimes we fight or sometimes I'm annoyed by my partner. So this can't be my soulmate. This can't be my fairy tale. But that's not true. That's actually could be a very beautiful, loving, healthy relationship. But we have to realize that nothing feels good all the time. So one of the things I think is important for me to, is to recognize that when we talk about living a better life or being happier, or even like 10% happier, that's really good. 10% happier is good. And he said sometime, some point in the book, oh, you know, there's this goal of 100% happier. And it wasn't exactly that he was saying we should get there or it's going to be something easy. But to me, I don't know what that even really means to be 100% happier. Or I don't think it makes sense to feel happy 100% of the time. By happy, I mean smiling, joyful every moment. Doesn't mean you can't live a more joyful life. Doesn't mean... Um, we can't do a lot of work. So it's not to say it doesn't matter. We shouldn't try to feel better. But my point is when we try to, when we make these expectations of 100% happy, we're happy all the time. Uh, you know, oh, this great guru comes and he's never sad or upset or annoyed by anything. He's only feeling good all the time. I don't first of all believe it at all. But then it gives us this expectation that that's what we should strive towards, which if we're not there, then we feel like we're, we're missing something or we're doing it wrong or we're living life wrong or we can't be as good as this person is. But I don't think that's at all realistic or what life is about. I actually usually talk about happiness is not something I think we should strive towards, especially when we think of happiness in the sense of just feeling good all the time. Some people think, well, I should feel good all the time. And unfortunately, what that does is it sends you on a hedonistic 
uh, conquest where you're just trying to feel good. Okay, this feels better than this. I should do that. Uh, you know, this feels better than that. I want to do this. What else can I enjoy? What else can I have fun out of and try to get something out of? But that's not to me what life should be about. Now, you can also define happiness about a more longer term feeling of fulfillment. But so I prefer trying to create a life that is purposeful, meaningful, and having a sense of contentment, which might seem similar to happiness and, and depends on how you define these words. But to me, contentment means feeling good about your life, about the life that you're living, which includes things like the relationships that you have, but also includes yourself and the actions you take, the person that you are. And that to me is much more important, contentment and fulfillment and purpose than happiness. I just want to feel good, smile all the time. Everything is joyful. To me, that's not even the goal of life. It's not realistic. I actually don't think it's healthy because if you are just happy all the time, which is sometimes people think that's a good thing, well, then what happens when the things in life that aren't good happen to you? You're just happy. So your husband or your wife dies and you're just going to be happy. That to me doesn't make sense. Yes, you can be grateful for the time you had for them. But if you create a beautiful, loving relationship with someone, when you lose it, yes, you know, you can look at the Buddhist teachings, which can be important about not being attached to things and, and trying to, um, you know, uh, be fulfilled or content and recognize that everything is temporary. The only thing that's uh, not temporary is like, you know, impermanence is the only t uh, thing that's permanent in a way. That I think does make sense, but I don't think it makes sense to think that you shouldn't get sad by things that happen in life. How much, how it affects you, how you act on those feelings, I think is very important. And that's something that people might be surprised to hear from me at times. I don't want to ever come off as saying, because I try to talk about the importance of feelings, because I think they're so undermined, it doesn't mean just act on your feeling. Oh, you're sad, do whatever you want because you're sad. You're angry, you can act out because you're angry or take revenge. No, not at all. I really do value the aspect of meditation and mindfulness where you become aware and as, as I was mentioning earlier, you respond rather than react. So you're aware of the feeling, but it doesn't have to dictate what you do or the next step. It can just be something that you're aware of. So I'm much more a proponent of fulfillment, meaning, purpose, and then contentment that comes from that and striving for happiness. And so purpose and meaning come from uh, our relationships, and it also comes from doing something meaningful with your life as far as usually helping others, contributing to the world in some way. Uh, he actually mentioned someone, uh, this rock star, kind of a smaller rock star, who said something like, you know, he said, what do you want to do in life? And he said, to be kind and do some awesome stuff, something like that, uh, essentially. But I, I like that type of a mindset. So be kind to others, do something good, have good relationships. And so um, the reason why I think this is important is because I see so often people have these unrealistic expectations for what life can be no one has it but they think you know this is why let's look at the next author who writes a book how to find a partner and be happy every day of your life or something you know and it's like yeah you can have a great relationship and definitely we can learn from experts and writers about how to create a better relationship definitely we should do that but if we have this mindset that i'm going to be perpetually happy or happy with my partner every day no bad days or whatever these types of sayings or slogans that are very popular in pop psychology or self-help type of things, we want to be very wary of them. And sometimes we can realize that it's not to lower our expectations in the sense that I'm saying, 
um, you know, lower your expectations about life. I always think people should strive for better, but we want to make sure we have realistic expectations. So sometimes when we talk about the glass being half empty or half full, interestingly, it's kind of hitting me now, we can think that the way that we look at the glass and how big it is, is important, right? So if you think your glass is half full, it could be because you imagine some kind of huge glass is the potential. So you're in love with your partner, things are good, but in your mind, because of fairy tales and myths and things that we hear, you imagine that actually love can be a thousand times better than this. So you think my, my love glass is half full, but maybe you're overestimating the size of the glass as far as the potential that is realistic. And that's something that we really want to be aware of. What am I coming up or where am I coming up with these ideas of what life or love can be like? Are they realistic? Is this what life should be? It's just like if someone told you, you know, if you follow my principles, you never have to sleep again. And so now you're like, gosh, I sleep like seven, eight hours a night. I'm such a loser. There's people that don't sleep at all. How do I get to that place? But you might not be realizing that you're calling yourself a loser or being very down on yourself for sleeping uh, seven, eight hours a night, but that's actually healthy and normal. Doing it less would not be good for you. And what those people are selling is not realistic or obviously it's something healthier or whatever it might be, but you might be comparing it to some standard that's not realistic about real life. So that's something I thought about in reading this book too, when we're looking for enlightenment and people are thinking, I'm going to be at peace and every moment is going to be just this peaceful thing. I think you can become more peaceful. It's aspirational to go towards something where you're living more at peace, but it doesn't mean every moment feels perfect all the time. And, and some of the people he interviewed did share that type of mindset that, no, I still get angry. I still get annoyed. I still do, you know, am annoying or get annoyed by people. And I think that's much more realistic. So sometimes when we say, you know, is the glass half empty or half full, we have to also ask ourselves, well, where did I get an idea of how big the glass is and how high that potential is supposed to be? Let's go into our last commercial break. Be right back. Welcome back. So in the last segment, I did want to talk a bit about the election here in the United States. Um, now, I know for some people it's very decided. For some people, they're saying we have to wait and see based on recounts and different things that are going on. So I won't even get too much into the results of it. And I know that people listen to these shows at different times. I know some of you are listening live, but people listen later and after the fact. But what I think is so important, I, I sent a tweet out, and I don't tweet that much, but then I put it on my um, uh, Instagram and Facebook also. But is that, you know, whoever wins or loses, whether you can say it's determined or not, I'm not going to get into that. But what's most important to me is that we have a lot of work to be done here in America because we have to put the United back in the United States of America because right now we're very disunified and it's, it's heartbreaking to see. And it also means that it doesn't man matter if your candidate wins, if half the country is against you and you feel against half the country, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And so... You know, you hear people talking about this, but I did want to talk about it again because I want to ask everyone, and I try to do it myself, to be more open-minded. Very easy thing to say, and no one's going to say they want to be more closed-minded. 
and something I've also talked about before is that when we say open-minded, everyone thinks they're open-minded because they think they're open-minded on the things they should be open-minded on and the things that they're not, they just think they're right. So people don't think they should be open-minded about is the sun going to come up tomorrow? They say, I know this. And so that's how we are about political issues. And um, unfortunately, what I see is people talk about political issues like they know. You know, people will talk about the economy and even PhD level expert economists will disagree about certain things, but people will talk about it like it's the absolute truth. Capitalism is this. Socialism is this. This is going to do this to the economy and I know it. And if you don't, you're stupid. You're an idiot on all these kinds of things. When it's things that even, again, expert level economists will disagree about this kind of a thing, but somehow people just know. And of course, some of that's our own hubris or our you know, overconfidence in ourselves. Some of it is because we're seeing news and reports and media um, that is all about our own state of mind, right? So if you're reading reports and it's saying socialism is the worst thing or capitalism is the worst thing and all you're seeing is those things and you think you're an expert on the economy and socialism and capitalism and now you can make these comments and what i think is interesting is i don't think most people know about these things you know they might say socialism or capitalism but they probably can't give you a, a good description about what those things even are in reality what does socialism actually mean or when you say capitalist what does that mean or a free market how much of even the united states where is it is it purely capitalistic is it socialistic in certain ways do you know a lot of times we don't. And so uh, it does take some humility to recognize that you might not know as much as you think you know. Your quote-unquote team might not be right about everything. And the other side is not just a bunch of stupid, idiot, immoral, uh, you know, hoping the worst for America, all those kinds of things. It's probably not the case. And I see this all the time if you go on Facebook, you can find people saying the exact same thing about the other side. They're stupid, they're immoral, they hate America, they're trying to ruin the country, uh, they only care about themselves, they're tricking you, whatever it is. So both sides think, unfortunately, the same thing, and it's very unfavorable about the other side. And I think it's important to just recognize that maybe we're not as different as we think we are. I'm not saying there are no differences. I'm not saying everyone thinks the same thing. Of course not. But in a lot of different issues, people think it's a matter of just black and white when it's usually about different levels of gray. Uh, even I'll talk about something controversial. When you look at abortion, people think it's just very black and white. So you're either pro-choice or pro-life, which again is, is often the case with these types of dichotomies. They both sound good. No one wants to be anti-choice or anti-life in a general sense, especially anti-life. But when we look at these things, it creates this polarization. Basically, the way it becomes, because of the two-party system, because of how polarized we are, because of how there isn't a lot of room for gray area, it's almost like one side has to be like never abortion no matter what, and the other side is abortion always, no matter what, doesn't matter, have it any time. Where most people are not on either one of those extremes, but what you see is that if you talk about these topics, people want to see which team you're on, and quickly will judge you and you have to be 100% on that side and people become even more extreme than what they actually believe. And this is what we see happens. People become more extreme because of 
these type of circumstances. It's not that they actually would think these things on their own, but if you surround them by other people that seem to be saying something like that, now they're even more extreme. But really, something like abortion, most people, I think, would actually recognize it's about a gray area because there's not a lot of people that think that, let's say, an abortion at nine months pregnancy is okay. So even people that are pro-choice don't believe usually in a late-term abortion. So then if we look at it, we're talking about when. And these are really tricky topics. And I think we have to drop the pretense that you know it's so stupid to do this or it's so stupid to do that and try to understand each other first and see that we're not that different. I hope you can understand someone who's pro-life or pro-choice, pro-gun or anti-gun for capitalism and the free market or for a more socialistic type of uh, economy. I would hope you can understand both because if you can't, again, there's experts in these fields that believe in both of these types of things. I will make one caveat. If we're talking about the rights of certain people or let's say a group or dehumanizing a group, there I think there shouldn't be room for, uh, we can at least still understand where they're coming from. But it, to me, it's a very different approach. Or if someone says uh, people who are whatever, if they said Iranians should not have certain rights, I would say that's different than uh, talking about uh, economic policy. So there are some distinctions. And at times still we're dealing with issues that have to deal with the rights of individuals, treating them as equal uh, discrimination to, towards certain groups. So I think that can be different. And even still, we should strive to understand the other side. Now, if they're saying, I don't think you should exist, I can understand that you don't want to try to understand that. Um, but as individuals, seeing if we can understand people a little bit better, more than just judging them. And so we do have to take that, that bitter pill that maybe I don't know everything I think I know. And if you go online, people are just experts on everything. People are experts on the virus. So coronavirus, they know. They know how masks work or don't work. And you'll see them talk about it like it's absolute truth. They know about climate change. They know exactly what's happening or not happening when it comes to climate change. And they write about it. Um, the economy, if you do this, the market's going to crash. If you do this, the market's going to crash. The other side is going to ruin the economy. The other, you know, you just see these things that everyone is experts on everything. And I think we have to take a step back and say, you know, I'm not quite sure. Here are some of my thoughts. Here are some of the things I've seen. Let's talk about it. And also recognize a lot of times it's not about things you know, it's what you want to be true. And that's another bitter pill to swallow, to say, you know what? I, I think I really care about, for example, uh, you know, the economy being in this way. It's something I've always felt is good. So that's why I might see it this way. And people don't want to think that. They think, no, I don't, I'm not, I'm not emotional about these things. Everything I believe is based on logic and science and proof. And I'm sorry to tell you, but that's not true. None of us is that way. We are all affected by things we believe or we want to be true. We're all affected by emotion when it comes to moral issues and political issues always have a moral element that is more of a uh, emotional thing than it is just about logic and reality. If you show me a report, I can tell you I'm very big on helping the homeless population. If someone shares a study about helping individuals experiencing homelessness in some way, I can assure you that I already know my biases towards it showing that it was a good thing that economically it worked well, my bias is there. 
I'm aware of that. I try to keep it in check by knowing I'm aware of that when I'm evaluating, let's say, a, a report or a study on something that was done to help people who are experiencing homelessness. But I know that my bias is there. Now, I might think it's right to do it even if it's not economically the best thing in some way. I think it's more humane. So even if people lost money or it was a little bit worse for the economy, I would still think 100% we should help people first. So I know some of my biases and where they are at, but we tend to think I'm unbiased. Everything I think is just truth and based on fact. And again, you can find when it comes, especially social sciences, things almost always on both sides. You can find PhD level brilliant economists that will be very pro free market capitalism. You can find brilliant economists who will tell you that it's important to be uh, more socialistic or have a more progressive tax um, system. So we have to accept that even when the brilliant minds in each field don't know and disagree, how can you be so sure? And so I hope people will accept that, that it's okay to not know because you probably don't. And it's much worse to think you know something you don't know than to say, I don't know. But we tend to think we should be so certain of everything and want to make the other people look so stupid. And one of the reasons why we want to make the other side look so stupid is because we realize we're not so sure and we're afraid we're actually kind of dumb or stupid about this issue. So we want to prove how smart we are about whatever the issue is and make the other side look bad, bring them down, make them look wrong because of that insecurity we have about what we know. Because you don't actually know as much as you might think you do. That's usually the case. And I think that's also why people like going online and watching videos of someone who's on their side on whatever issue, you know, demolish, destroy, eviscerate someone from the other side because then they feel so good. Look at this debate between, you know, the guy on my side or the girl on my side and the person on the other side and my side is smart and they're stupid. Even though you can probably find uh, the reverse happening where that same topic and you have the brilliant mind with someone who's trying to debate them and it shows that it's the opposite. But we like to watch those videos that prove how right we are. And so we have to accept that, you know what, maybe I don't know and that's okay because I can assure you we all don't know most things. And maybe the other side knows some things or at least has some ideas that make sense too. And I don't want to completely throw them away because not only do I throw away the good ideas they might have, what we're doing in America right now is we're throwing away half of our co-citizens. We're all citizens here in this country. The only way we're really going to achieve some level of peace and tranquility that we talk about in the, the Constitution justice for all, all those good things. The only way that all part is very important, that everyone deserves all the rights. And also it's going to take all of us to work together to get there. So whatever happens based on this election, as far as you're happy or sad about the results, I hope that you will be part of the uniting of the United States of America and recognize that if you make it us against them, whoever is your us and whoever is that them, we're not going to get there. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>